Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Hey, well, we are going to go into our time of teaching now. And uh, if, you're, if you're new, you want to make sure that inside you'll see this inside your program is a message note sheet we use every week. That'll definitely help you follow along. So I encourage you to take that out. And then if you guys are all, all set and ready to go, you know, you know what? You're a little bit more awake than the last crowd. A little, little bit more. Right. How many are normally your nine o'clock people and you just snuck in here? Yeah, see, I knew. I knew. Right. I told them, hey, set up less chairs at nine because there's some people that are going to be going to 11. They're normally nine o'clock people. So it's good to see you. Welcome to 11. You'll see how we do life at 11. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll go into the time of teaching. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our church and our lives. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, we're just passionate about him. He's captured our heart and our affections. And we want to know how to follow him, and we just pray you'd open the eyes of our heart, that you'd help us to see who you are, who you've called us to be, and the life you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're uh, continuing this series that we've been in now for the last couple months. It's called Jesus the King. And so for those of you who are, are brand new, welcome. I always like to start at the beginning, just, have just a couple minutes on, on where this series is about. Uh, this series is really a study of the life and teaching of Jesus as told by one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus, a man by the name of Mark. Mark was a close friend and associate of the apostle Peter. And so his, his, his gospel that he writes is uh, based on the, uh, the firsthand uh, eyewitness account of the apostle Peter. He's writing it very early in the movement of Jesus, when uh, the movement's only about 35 years old, uh, about 35 years after the life in, in, of Jesus. Uh, and he's writing it to Christ followers in the capital of Rome, uh, who have, have come to Jesus but are undergoing some major persecution. And so he's, he's writing to help them understand, well, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And also, of course, the gospel becomes a great uh, introduction to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, it's a great way for them to share the message of Christ. And so if you've been with us, we've watched as Jesus has gone into the northern part of the country, the area called the Galilee, and he has begun sharing his message. His message is very simple. Uh, his message is about the kingdom of God. And so for a thousand years, the prophets had predicted that there would come a time when God would break into time and space in, uh, in Jewish history, break into the world in a new way, uh, that he would send his Messiah to come, that it would be the start of a whole new era, a whole new age, all wrongs turned to right, golden age of the universe, new heavens and new earth. And so when Jesus comes, his claim is that that kingdom is starting, that kingdom is being launched and that he's the king of this kingdom. And so on top of this, then he's backing up that claim by, by wherever he goes, performing miraculous signs that really prove and substantiate his claim that the kingdom is dawning in time and space. So wherever he goes, uh, he's healing the sick, uh, he will later be raising the dead. Uh, he will walk on water. He'll turn water into wine. Uh, these are all signs that the power of the coming age are breaking into time and space. It's like a, a, a preview of coming attractions, what life will be like when the universe is healed, when things are, well, all wrongs are turned to right. And so uh, last week we started kind of a brand new section in the Gospel of Mark, it's chapter two. And in this section, Mark is stringing together uh, five separate conflict events that happened early in the life of ministry of Jesus 
uh, to help us understand where this story is going. Because these conflicts that he's having with the religious leaders of his day are eventually going to lead to his arrest and execution. So very early in the story, Mark is beginning to uh, kind of give this picture of storm clouds beginning to uh, come together. So last week, we looked at the very first conflict event. And what happened is that Jesus healed the man who'd been paralyzed. We don't know if he's a quadriplegic or a paraplegic, but he healed the man. And in the process, he forgave the man's sins. He he claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, which is something only God can do, which led him into immediate conflict with the religious leaders. Today, we're going to go into conflict story number two. Uh, and we're going to cover that. But before we jump in, we need to have some background on Israel at the time of Jesus so we can take this story and, and take it from kind of black and white fuzzy to, uh, to high def color. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you got your note sheets or your notepads, your, uh, your apps or whatever, turn with me to uh, chapter 2 of, uh, of Mark. And uh, there on your note sheet, before we go into chapter 2, uh, there's a section called Israel uh, 101. Pharisees, sinners, and tax collectors. And what I want to do today is talk to you about these three, three kind of categories of people that were in Israel at the time uh, that help us to understand the story and to make it kind of, kind of uh, make sense just today. And so uh, because it was this weekend and I figured the nine o'clock people wouldn't be awake, uh, I printed out the word, uh, all the bullets on here so you don't have to write anything. So as 11 o'clock people, you just get to ride with the nine o'clock people. All right, so... Uh, I figured no one at nine could spell the word Pharisee. Uh, so here we go. Let's, let's talk first about Pharisees. We're going to talk about Pharisees, tax, uh, sinners, tax collectors, right? So, so Pharisees. Uh, how many of you heard the name, you've heard the term Pharisee before? Okay, I, I would expect that. They're very common. If you've been a Christian any length of time at all, you know that Pharisees were arch enemies of Jesus. Uh, even if you, you're really new to this Christianity, it's the first time you've ever been to church in your life. If it is, by the way, welcome. But if it's the first time you've ever been to church, you may have heard the word Pharisee because it's actually come down in our culture. We talk about something very Pharisaical, and it, and it means someone's very self-righteous or very hypocritical. And so we often think of the Pharisees as the black hats in the story, the bad guys in the story. But did you know this, that the Pharisees actually started out as an amazingly godly movement? Uh, the, the Pharisees actually started off uh, as part of a, a larger movement about 200 years before the time of Jesus. So if you rewind the clock, you go 200 years before Jesus, a nation named Syria, it was called the Seleucid Dynasty, but the nation of Syria came into Israel, conquered Israel, and they wanted to destroy all their sense of national identity. And since it was such a highly religious nation, they made it illegal to practice many of the laws of God. And the Pharisees were part of a larger group that, that kind of rose up to say, no, that we're going to pursue God uh, no matter what the cost. We love his word. We want to follow his word, obey his word. And you can kill us or you can torture us or you can do what, but we're going to pursue God. And so the Pharisees were a group of incredibly passionate kind of Yahweh followers that were, were amazing people at the start of the movement. But as often happens in spiritual movements, over time it goes downhill and, and they forget what, what's most important. And so uh, what happens is over time they begin to add all these man-made rules to what God had said in his word and it killed the movement. Uh, in fact, next week we're starting a new series, kind of a mini-series 
um, that covers the next three conflicts, these five conflicts, and, and I'm calling it Religion Kills. And one of the things we're going to see is one of the greatest enemies of God is religion. One of the greatest enemies in your personal life, your personal relationship with God, one of the greatest enemies of the human race is religion. Because religion doesn't take us closer to God, it separates us from God and makes us a menace to society. And so th these men who started so well, they got off track spiritually. They started adding all these man-made rules. And this is what led Jesus into conflict with them is because they, they, he, he didn't honor their man-made rules. Uh, and one of the core, core beliefs of the Pharisees, one of their core uh, convictions was that if you want to get close to God, then you have to stay far away from anyone who isn't close to God. Okay, so, so that's going to come in today's story. Yeah, that's the Pharisees. Uh, second group. Second group is called the sinners. Now, uh, you may be saying, well, but Mike, aren't we all sinners? And the answer, of course, is yes. But in ancient Israel, uh, there was actually, the Pharisees kind of separated the world into two kinds of people. You had the righteous and sinners. And, and sinners were not only those people that uh, kind, of, kind of blatantly disobeyed, God's moral or criminal law, like they, like in other words, they, they would, maybe they were thieves or murderers or uh, uh, sexually immoral or whatever, uh, but there were also people that just really didn't follow all the ritual law of Judaism uh, that God had required, the, the sacrifices and eating kosher and that kind of thing, uh, or who didn't believe, uh, didn't follow all the oral laws that the Pharisees had added to God's law uh, that the rabbis had passed out. And so uh, it's kind of a, when we talk about sinners, and you'll see this, this term in the New Testament, in, in uh, the Gospels, it's really a technical term. And it's, it means very different then than what we often think of it meaning uh, today. And to give you a feel for this, I want to introduce you to a book today. I'll actually probably bring a copy of it in a couple of weeks, but some of you from Jewish backgrounds may be familiar with this. Have any of you ever heard of a book called The Mishnah? Any of you heard of that? Yeah, a few of you have. Okay, so the Mishnah uh, was, was actually written about the year 200 AD. So it's written about 170 years after Jesus. But scholars tell us that what it does is the Mishnah just writes down all these oral laws of the Pharisees that have been passed on from generation to generation for, for really a long time. And so uh, scholars will tell us that for the most part when you read the Mishnah, that what you're really reading is the social, the, kind of the religious mentality of the Pharisees in the first century uh, before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And, and so through the Mishnah, we get, to, we get to understand what Jesus was up against. We understand the world of Jesus. And in the Mishnah, they help us understand how Pharisees saw sinners, like what a sinner was. And we'll see this wide wide uh, definition of not just morally or criminally uh, uh, liable people, but, but people that just don't follow all the, the ritual or the, law, the, the oral law. And so there in your note sheet, to give you a feel for this, because what I want to do as we go through this series on Mark is I want us to be taking us back to the time of Jesus constantly so we can really understand uh, uh, what Jesus' message was, because if we don't understand the times, we'll misunderstand the message, then we'll misunderstand what it means to follow. So here on your note sheet, <clears throat> there's a quote <clears throat> from a scholar named James Edwards, and he wrote a great commentary on Mark, uh, and he helps us understand how the Mishnah describes uh, or defines a sinner. So, so here we go. The Mishnah de describes sinners variously as gamblers, money lenders, that would be like bankers, um, 
What? Uh, people who race doves for sport. So knock it off. Um, people who trade on the Sabbath year. Oh, then we have thieves. Okay. The violent. Okay, kind of like gangbangers. Um, shepherds. That's interesting. Who did uh, the angels first appear to when Jesus was born? Yeah, sinners, shepherds. Uh, and of course, of course, tax collectors. We'll talk more about them later. Now, s- some of the above are criminal elements, but many are simply laborers and commoners who are too busy, uh, too poor, or too ignorant to live up to the rules of the religious authorities. So in our eyes, of course, listing common folks with thieves is like throwing jaywalkers into jail with hardened criminals, but it did not seem so to the Pharisees. Okay, so, so you got this. So sinners, technical term. That's why in our Bible there'll be quotes around it. Uh, and and it, it really referred to not just people that were having blatant uh, immoral things uh, or criminal acts, but also people who are not really following the religious laws uh, of Judaism or of the oral law of the rabbis, right? Okay, third kind of person we need to, we need to put into focus now is tax collectors. Okay, so tax collectors are a subset of sinners, right? So you have sinners, you have subset tax collectors. Now, tax collectors, we need to get this, they were universally despised. Everyone hated tax collectors. There were multiple reasons why, and not just because they collected taxes. Uh, Number one, uh, number one, they were sellouts. Uh, They were collaborators with the Romans. So picture this, Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully this is not prophetic, but 30, 40 years from now, we are invaded by China, all right? China takes over our country. So now there's Chinese tanks in the street, Chinese uh, officials from China everywhere running the country. So we are an occupied nation, right? Now, now picture that. Now, how do you think you'd feel about these Chinese occupants, invaders? You'd have tremendous resentment, wouldn't you? Well, this is the same emotion that Israel had towards Rome. About 100 years before the time of Jesus, Rome had invaded. 63 BC, uh, General Pompey came in, destroyed Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem. And so for the last uh, about 100 years, they've been under Roman rule and occupation. Tax collectors are the collaborators. They would be like in World War II when, when Nazi Germany conquered, say, France. There were some who cooperated, some who resisted. The cooperators would be the tax collectors. They were people working for the enemy, collecting taxes for the Chinese who invaded our country. You see, that, that's the feel. That's the emotional feel. So that's number one. Secondly, the uh, tax collectors were considered spiritual rejects uh, by everyone. Uh, they're, they're people that had sold out their country, their God, and their families for the sake of money. Uh, They were not even allowed to go to the synagogue. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They couldn't go to church in a country that was hugely, uh, life revolved around the synagogue. And so uh, part of their job was to work with Gentiles, which made them by definition unclean. And so they were the spiritual rejects of the the nation. And then on top of that, uh, they were rip-off artists. Uh, The the tax collectors, uh, they would often bid for their position 
Uh, and if they, they won the bid, then they had the, the power of the Roman government behind them to collect taxes. And so they could extort money, they could abuse their power to, to take more money than they really legally were required to take. And this is how they would pad their own pockets. They were often very dishonest. And so for all these reasons, uh, they were deeply hated, okay? And so that's tax collectors. And so to give you a feel for this, uh, look on your note sheet. Again, just take it, try to take us back to the time of Jesus, what it felt like. Uh, this is a quote again from James Ed- Edwards uh, and the Mishnah. He says, uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud, which was actually written later, uh, they register scathing judgments of tax collectors, lumping them together with thieves and murderers. Now catch this, a Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or witness in court. So if you're a tax collector, you could not testify in court. You're, you're, it was considered unreliable. Um, they were expelled from the synagogue. They couldn't go to church. They were a cause of disgrace to their family. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. If you had a tax collector come into your house and touch anything, you had to get the Lysol out. I mean, it's like, go through, cleanse the house. Uh, spiritual, it's actually with water and hyssop and all those kind of things from the Old Testament. Uh, Jews were forbidden to receive money from a tax collector and even alms, you know, for the poor uh, from tax collectors since revenue from taxes was deemed robbery. I like that. Um, (laughs) Jewish contempt for tax collectors is epitomized in the rule that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity. (laughs) You love that? You go to your local rabbi. Hey, is it okay if I lie to tax collector? Sure. That's good. God's good with that. Uh, Now, just to be clear, I'm not good with that. Just to be clear, that's the Mishnah, right? So we're in tax season. Okay. (laughs) So tax collectors were tangible reminders of Romans' domination detested alike for their injustice and their Gentile uncleanness, okay? So so you got the three players now. We get who the Pharisees are started great at all these man-made rules. Uh, They've now uh, become this oppressive uh, religious force in their their country. In fact, uh, I didn't mention this before, but in the time of Jesus, there was three major spiritual influence groups or kind of denominations. There was Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. And Pharisees by far had the strongest influence on on the life and the heart of the nation. Uh, The Roman uh, Jewish historian Josephus tells us at the time of Jesus, there was only 6,000 Pharisees because they're very rigid lifestyle. It was not real popular, but they had tremendous influence over the So we know who Pharisees are. We've got who sinners are, this broad category. We got who tax collectors are, okay? So now we're ready to go into our story today and have it come to life. So uh, there in your note sheet, you have a section called Conflict Number Two, Tax Collectors and Sinners. And we're going to uh, jump in at chapter 2, pick it up at verse 13. So here we go. So once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. This would be the Sea of Galilee. He's right there in Capernaum still. So a large crowd uh, came to him, and he began to teach them. This was kind of normal, everyday Jesus' life. And as he walks along, he sees Levi who's the son of a man named Alphaeus, and he's sitting at the tax collector's booth. And so running through Capernaum was a major international highway uh, from north to south, started in, in, in Egypt, went up north through Palestine and to the Roman Empire. Capernaum sat there on that highway. Two major uh, provinces came together, ruled by two different kings, and so it was a tax station. It was a place where 
uh, you would have to pay taxes on your goods that you were transporting uh, from one province to another. And so, uh, and so, so Levi is there. Uh, we know a lot about Levi just by what we learned about tax collectors, don't we? That uh, he was a spiritual reject. He's a man who's far from God. He's a man who cannot, uh, he cannot testify in court. He's not allowed to go to church. Um, if he comes to your house, you're going to have to cleanse it ceremonially afterwards. Uh, he, if he offers you money, you say no. If you're homeless at Walmart and he gives you a five, you say no. Uh, you cannot, this guy is far from God. And yet, as the story goes on, uh, my hunch is, is that Matthew, uh, or that, that Levi, had actually uh, uh, heard of Jesus, probably heard him teach. We're going to see later that, that Levi has some friends that are followers of Jesus in a very casual sense, kind of like, like on Twitter sense, they're following Jesus. And so um, they're, they're following Jesus. And so my guess is he is too, that he's probably heard him teach. He's probably seen him do some miracles, or if not seen it, maybe he's heard stories of people whose eyes have been opened, the paralytic who's been healed, that sort of thing. Um, but, but he's a man far from God. I mean, he can't even go to church, let alone talk to a rabbi. Okay, that's who, that's who he is. Now, from evidence in the New Testament, we believe that Levi also went by another name, which is Matthew, the tax collector. And if that's right, then Matthew is later on going to become a follower of Jesus. He'll become part of the inner circle. He's one of the 12 disciples. And he will actually write Bible. He'll write the first gospel of Matthew in our New Testament. But that's, that's way into the future. Right now, he's a man far from God. We don't know if it's a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday. We don't know what day of the week it is. But he's there. Uh, he's kind of uh, ostracized from his culture. Probably fairly well off, though. Uh, he's got his own buddies that are tax collectors and other sinners. But he's at work today. He's just collecting taxes. Probably heard Jesus before, but uh, maybe recognizes him. But he's at his He's at his booth, he's collecting taxes as people go by, and all of a sudden, uh, Jesus gets in line, or whatever he does, and, and, and this rabbi comes up, and Matthew's got to be wondering, like, what is happening here? Uh, I can't even go to church, let alone talk to a rabbi. Uh, one of the, the, you know, the, the key uh, operating theories of the Pharisees and the rabbis was that uh, if I want to get close to God, I stay away from people like you. And so, yet yeah, here is this young rabbi that everyone's talking about coming towards him. And so, you're wondering what's going through Matthew's mind as the rabbi comes. He's probably thinking it's going to be judgment. It's going to be condemnation. There's going to be a word of rebuke. What are you doing? This is kind of your mindset. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and Jesus uh, reaches out a hand and he invites him to become a student of his. He, he invites this man who can't go to church, he invites him to become one of his inner circle. He invites him to become a disciple, an apprentice. He's the rabbi, come under my leadership. Now this is pretty drastic because in that day, uh, rabbis did not recruit followers. If you wanted to become a disciple of a rabbi, it was usually a long and rigorous process. You had to apply for the position, present your resume, and you had to convince the rabbi that you're worthy of being their disciple. You're serious, you've done your studies, blah, blah, blah. And yet here is Jesus as the rabbi recruiting the follower, and he's the least likely to succeed in this class. And so everyone around Jesus has to be blown away by this. He's breaking all the spiritual rules of their day. 
And, uh, but he calls them to follow him just like back in chapter 1, he called these four commercial fishermen, leave your nets, drop your nets, follow me, come under my leadership, which by definition means to, as we saw back in chapter 1, repent and believe the kingdom of God's at hand, going to turn from the old life, come under my leadership. And Levi responds. And so he comes to his booth, and in verse 14, as he walked along, he sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he says, follow me. And Jesus told him, and Levi got up, and he follows him. Okay, and so now everyone's there, got to be really blown away by this whole dynamic that's happening. It's just like the least likely thing you could imagine. And now Matthew's going to do an incredible thing. Uh, he's going to go out, and he's got a bunch of buddies that have been interested in this young rabbi. I'm sure they've never met him. They've probably never been up close and personal with him, but they too maybe have heard him teach, watched him heal miracles. He's very different from any rabbis of their day, very different from the religious leaders they've been exposed to. And so they've been sort of following from a distance as well. And Levi thinks, wouldn't it be awesome if I could somehow introduce them to Jesus? Uh, because they're not going to believe this. They're not going to believe that he called me to follow him. And so wouldn't it be awesome if I could create an environment, a place where, where my friends, who are also far out, could come and meet this young rabbi who's changing my life, and I could just introduce him in a smaller, more intimate setting. And so in Luke's gospel, in chapter 5, we're told this is exactly what Levi does, that he actually throws a barbecue. It's actually, a, they called him a banquet. But it's like, he gets a barbecue going. He invites all of his rowdy sinner friends to come over and meet the young rabbi who's changing his life. And so, so they accept the invitation. But what blows the religious leaders away is that Jesus accepts the invitation. Because remember, if you want to get close to God, you stay far away. It's bad enough you went after one. Now you're going to go hang out with all these tax collectors and sinners. Don't you understand? God hates those people. That's why we should hate them too if we're going to truly be true to God. And so he, he invite, and Jesus accepts the invitation and he's going to go and he's going to have dinner with them, which in that culture, like many cultures around the world today, to have dinner with someone is much more than just sharing a meal. It's a sign of acceptance, sign of relationship, sign of friendship. And so uh, Mark kind of skips that part of the story, just jumps to dinner and in verse 15, it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, remember now, uh, you'd have to kind of cleanse yourself if you went into an environment like this, according to the, the rabbinic laws. He, he's having dinner, uh, and, with, and many tax collectors and sinners, and we know who those people are now, they're, they're eating with him and his disciples, this intimate act of relationship. And for catch this, there were many who followed him. And so I, I, this is going to be important for later on. There were many tax collectors and sinners who are following Jesus, drawn to Jesus, liked Jesus, intrigued by Jesus, wanted to listen to Jesus, hear from Jesus. It was very different than any of that experience. I want you to catch this. It says many. It doesn't say most. It doesn't say all. I'm sure there were many who didn't like Jesus. We're told in the word that the darkness hates the light. And many times people are going to hate the light just because they're doing dark things. So not everyone, not all sinners loved Jesus, but there were many who were drawn to him, intrigued. And so those were the friends that, 
that, that Levi knew about. And so he invited him, hey, why don't you come to my place and create an environment? Now, now let, me just, let me just do a quick little sidebar here before we go on. Isn't this exactly what we're called to do as followers of Jesus? We're to create space in our own lives and as a church where people who are far from God can come in a comfortable setting where we can introduce them to our rabbi. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. That's what, so that's what Levi does. And so Jesus accepts. They're going, they're having dinner. Now, the religious leaders, this is breaking all the rules of their day. Uh, it's a totally different paradigm. And so when the teachers of the law, verse 16, who were Pharisees, and we know who those are now, they saw him eating with, quote, sinners and tax collectors. So those are three categories. They asked his disciples, hey, what's he doing? Why does he eat with tax collectors? Like, what, like, what? I think the subtext is, what is he thinking? Uh, what, what's going on here? This wasn't just a, huh, that's interesting. What's he doing? This is like, what is he doing? This is breaking all the rules. And so Jesus apparently hears this going on. And so he's going to give an analogy. And here's his analogy. He says, hey, if you go to med school, um, you don't go to med school so you can hang out with healthy people all day long. If you want to go to med school, the whole reason you go is so you can hang out with sick people all day long to help them get better. And so, uh, so, so, so that's why I've come. I, I've come, the way I see these people who are far from God, I see them as sick, as people uh, emaciated, as people as uh, uh, spiritually diseased. People are not healthy. People are not, they're not living life as God intended them to be lived. And I've come, I, I care about them. I have compassion. I want to come and enter their world because I understand with no contact means no impact. And so I want to enter their world as a doctor and help heal them. That's why I've come. That's why I'm doing this. And so that's the analogy he uses. So he says in verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he sends this final shot over the bow. The reason I've come, I'm not come to call uh, righteous people, I've come to call sinners. Now on the surface, that sounds like he's playing right into these Pharisees' hands because the way they divided the world, they're righteous and they're sinners. And it almost sounds on the surface like what Jesus is saying is there's some people who need me and there's some who don't. I've come for the people who need me. Some people don't need me. But I think what he's saying is exactly the opposite. What he's saying is that until we realize we're sick, not even Jesus can help us. You know, uh, 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 the last five or six years, I've spent a lot of time at UCLA because some of the voice issues I've had. Uh, Cedar sinai some of the finest medical institutions in our country. And yet the, the reality is, it doesn't matter if, if you have the greatest doctor in the world. If you're not willing to be honest about your condition, they can't help you. And this was the problem with the religious leaders. They had so redefined what it means to be right with God by their own man-made rules that they felt like they were righteous. They didn't realize how far from God they were. And so actually, the people who are farthest from God in this event are not the tax collectors and sinners. It's 
the righteous Pharisees because they didn't even realize that they were sick. And so Jesus is sort of an underhanded, kind of sarcastic way, which I love. <laughs> uh, I came for sick people, not for self-righteous people. If you study the life and teaching of Jesus, the one kind of person he couldn't help was self-righteous people. All right, so, so that's the passage, right? Now, from this passage, uh, two principles stand out to me that are really important in understanding both who Jesus is and then who we are as his followers, who we're called to be. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called A uh, Friend of Sinners, The Model to Follow. And uh, so let's jump in. The first one's a little bit more obvious. The second one's where we're headed. Uh, but let's start with the first one. Uh, the first thing that jumps out from the story is that Jesus came for people far from God. That the, what Jesus wants these religious leaders, this is why I've come. I've come for people exactly like Levi. I've come for people like Levi's friends. I've come for people that are far from God. Uh, we've seen him today. He's searching out after Levi. He, Levi doesn't come to him. He goes to him. He, he recruits him personally. Uh, and then when Levi throws this party for Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I'd love to come to your party. Uh, he's going to break all the rules. I'd love to meet your friends. And so Jesus has come for people. In fact, I would suggest this, that what we learn from this story is that not only that Jesus has come to call people far from God, but that the farther away a person is from God, the more excited Jesus gets about bringing them home. Right? So I would suggest that what this story learned is, is the sicker a person is, the more excited Jesus gets about healing them. It's exactly the opposite of what the religious leaders thought. And, and, and so you can see this, you know, you can imagine this as a doctor, what would you rather do? Would you rather uh, kind of uh, see people that have the flu all day long and tell them, now, now, you'll be okay, go home in three days, you'll be better? Uh, or would you rather, if you had the ability as a doctor to work with someone who had a very serious illness, you could actually uh, heal? I mean, which would you rather do? And so what we're seeing is that Jesus is going to get more excited. Like the further away someone is from God, the more excited Jesus gets as a doctor about healing them. And you see this uh, later on in his life. You know, later on in, in Jesus' life, there'll be another situation in Luke 15, uh, probably another city, another time, we're not sure, but uh, some of the Pharisees, once again, are criticizing him uh, for eating with tax collectors and sinners. The same scenario. And in that scenario, Jesus actually uh, tells three stories, three short stories to help them understand how, how uh, God feels about people far from him. Uh, first story is the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, loses one, and leaves the 99 behind to go and rescue the one because he's so valuable. Okay. Second story is about a woman who loses 10% of her savings and is desperately searching to find it, will not stop until she finds it, and is so excited when she finds it because, uh, because it's, it's all her savings, so valuable. Third story, story of a man who loses his son, not in a literal sense, but uh, in a spiritual sense. He has a son, grows up on the farm, uh, takes his inheritance early. The guy lives in Iowa or something, uh, moves to Hollywood. Uh, he's going to make it big in the film industry. Uh, then spends all his money on hookers and cocaine, 
right, destitute now, and now he eventually comes to his senses, comes back to his father in Iowa, we're told the father runs to him, throws his arms around him, says, my son who was lost has now been found, right? So Jesus tells these three stories to help the Pharisees understand how God feels about people far from him. They are deeply valuable. He will search after them just like Levi, and when he finds them, there'll be great joy. But, so, but Jesus says something in that first story, at the end of the first story, the one about the shepherd and the lost sheep. It's incredibly profound. And it's there in your note sheet. I put it from the New Century version of the Bible. But he says, I tell you that there is what? Okay, let's say it together. There is what? More joy. Underline that. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who, ch who changes his heart and life than over 99 good people who don't need to change. What's he saying is that the further away from God that you are, the more excited heaven gets about bringing you back. That, that's his paradigm. And so what Jesus wants us to understand, this is who he is. That, that uh, Let's talk in our lives. Like if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and there's a part of you that wonders, you know, could I really ever be, have a relationship with God? Could I ever have a new life? Because uh, I understand God does that for other people, but they're probably not as bad off as I am. And I've done certain things in my life I'm deeply ashamed of. They're truly uh, heinous crimes or immoral acts that I'm just so ashamed that I don't really believe that, that he could bring me back. I don't believe he would want me. Well, we see today he does that actually the farther away from God you are, the more excited he gets about bringing you back, all right? So, uh, so, so that's for us who are not, but for us who are believers, it helps us to understand that as believers, when we fall into sin and we walk away from Jesus, uh, how he sees us, how he comes after us, how he treasures us and wants to bring us back. And so we learn who Jesus is today. Uh, we learn that he has come to call people far from God. But everything I've said so far is kind of leading up to point number two. We, we need to understand who Jesus is so we can talk about who we are called to be. And that's really my heart today for us to focus on. So let's go to number two. Number two then goes like this that our calling as Christ followers, our calling is to people far from God. So Jesus came to pe for people far from God, so our calling as Christ followers is to people far from God. In other words, once we come to Jesus, we become part of his mission to seek and save lost people. Many of you were with us last fall when we did this series called The Assignment. We talked about this, that, that the moment that we become a follower of Jesus, we become part of his mission, his movement, and Jesus defined that movement. He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. That's why I've come. In fact, there on your note sheet, from uh, Luke 19.10 and the, the New Century Version again, the Son of Man, which is his name for himself, he came to find lost people and save them, all right? So, this, so the moment you and I become a follower of Jesus, we become a part of that movement. That becomes part of our job description, part of our assignment. And so you see this in Levi's life because the moment he comes to Jesus, uh, he's so blown away that this young rabbi that he's watched from a distance would seek him out and, and make be a friend and invite him to come into his, under his uh, leadership that the first thing he does is he goes and he throws a party to create space uh, where it's comfortable space, a uh, non-intimidating space, 
Uh, his buddies have all been to his house before. They've had barbecues together, so that's not intimidating. So why don't you come, and I'll invite the rabbi here, and I'd love you to meet this man that everyone's talking about, who's just changed my life. And so he just creates this great space where he can introduce his friends to the man who's changed his life, all right? And so, so this becomes like a picture of what our lives are about, that we come to Jesus, and then part of our uh, assignment is to join him, to create space, whether it's in our own personal life or as a church, where, where people can come in a comfortable environment and be introduced to our rabbi, right? So, so we see uh, Matthew kind of uh, modeling this. So, so this becomes a, uh, a core uh, part of our calling then as a Christ follower, right? And so the question then in our life is, uh, is, is, is are we uh, a friend of sinners? Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, this was such a model for such a pattern in his life that his critics, uh, they came up with a name for him. And we, we look back from the 21st century and say, isn't that a cool name? Well, we need to understand it was a derogatory name at the time. We've seen what sinners mean. And so they said, listen, this guy, he, he's not really, do you really want, and they, they called him a friend of sinners, this, this class of people, you're a friend of sinners. And so they meant it in a very negative way. Like, do you really want to follow a rabbi who's a friend of sinners? Like, like, why would you ever do that? So they meant that as a very much a negative. But Jesus saw it as a badge of honor that this was his identity. He was a friend of sinners. And so here's the question then uh, for us is, um, are you a friend of sinners? Now, just to be clear, as we begin to launch in and talk about this, I want to be really clear. I understand that the darkness hates the light. And there are many times, just as being a follower of Jesus, standing for what's right and true and good, people are going to hate you just because of that. So, so I get that. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't a friend of all sinners, just many sinners. The question is that peop, these sinners looked at Jesus as someone who is approachable. They looked at him as someone who is warm, someone who is caring, someone that would share a meal with them. Uh, that would have relationship. The question I have for you is, as a follower of Jesus, do the non-believers in your life see you that way? Here's the thing. I think in our culture today, if you were to ask kind of the average man on the street in Southern California, when you hear the word Christian, what comes to your mind? I think that the many times the answer you would hear back is, is they would begin to throw out words like, well, you tell me, what, what, what would they be? Throw out some words. Hypocrite, right? Hypocrite, what's another one? Judgmental, right? Condemning. And here's the reality, is we often deserve it. Well, let's put it this way. The Christian movement in America, I can speak for America, often deserves it, right? Because, it's, because often, if we're honest, and you look at Christianity in America, we have lived more like the Pharisees than we have like Jesus, a Jesus follower, right? And so, uh, are you, now, now let me say this. The, the reason why 
the church in America has often been this way, is because we have bought into the same paradigm that the Pharisees bought into. That paradigm, if you want to get close to God, you need to stay far away from people who are not close to God. And let me tell you, if you buy into that paradigm, if you get on that path, you will always end up becoming a Pharisee. It will drive you. And so let me say this. For those of you maybe are, are brand new believers or you're just getting back with Christ, I, I want to be very clear about this. I, I believe there's a time and a place we need to step away from our old life and our old friends. Like when you first come to Jesus, many times, especially if you've been in a pretty wild lifestyle, that you, you need to take a break because you're just vulnerable and you just can't go to the same parties, hang out with the same, you're going to need a break in order to kind of the temptation's too strong, you need to step away. I get that. I, want to be, I don't want anyone coming back next week and said, I had an awesome week. I went back to my old friends. We got high. It was just amazing. Uh, and we, we used to be, well, now we're tight again, you know? Just thanks for sharing that message, Mike. It's powerful. Um, so so I, I want to give that caveat. You understand what I'm saying? But if you pull away from those friends, it's not because you're getting away from them because God's away from them. Right? You're getting away from them because you, you just need to pull back in order to draw close to God in your own life. So it's a very, very different motivation. Okay, so, so, so these two different, um, two different paradigms, two different paths. You know, what, what one paradigm is to get close to God, we gotta get far away from people who are not close to God. Jesus' paradigm is the closer to God you get, the closer you get to the people that are far from him because that's where he is, you see? And so, so which is your paradigm? And so, so in your life, would you say, are you a friend of sinners? Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or anything. I'm just trying to just say, I'm just going to raise some issues here for you to think through. And here's the question. Are you on the path of the Pharisees or are you on the path of Jesus? And so I want to get very practical here. And I want to uh, kind, of, kind of bore down and I want to you know, probably ruffle some feathers. But, but I think it'll be good for us. Uh, so, so let me just give you some specifics. But let's say that you work at the office and in your uh, office, you, have, uh, you share a cubicle and area with a person who's a flaming liberal, left-wing liberal, on every political, moral, and spiritual issue in our culture today. They stand for everything that you would be against in those areas. How do you relate to that person? And would they see you as a friend or would they see you as an enemy? Not because you're but in, your, in the way you personally relate to them, right? Uh, let me give you another one. Uh, in your neighborhood, your apartment, your home, whatever, the next door neighbor or across the street, uh, a gay couple moves in. And they invite you over for dinner. Or invite you over for a barbecue. Are you going to say yes and go pursue a relationship with them, a friendship? Or are you going to think of every excuse in the book not to go? And then go to your life group and say I can't believe what the world is coming to. You're not going to believe who moved in next to me. How disgusting. You're working at the gym. There's a guy there that you've kind of been a, a, a working acquaintance with. You know, you talk life a little bit, nothing real heavy, nothing real deep, but you're often there at the same times working out, and so you've kind of, it's a casual relationship, and you find out that he produces porn videos in Chatsworth, which is fairly likely, by the way, but, uh, (laughs) 
do you continue to pursue that relationship and begin to pray for that man and ask Jesus for opportunity to build a relationship with him? Or do you start going to a different part of the gym when you see him coming? You work in a warehouse. One of the forklift operators is a guy that's uh, all tatted up. This white guy, never thought much about it, shaved head. You find out he's a skinhead. He is an angry man. He hates people of color. He hates Jews. Are you going to move towards him and build a relationship on the things you have in common, maybe sports and dirt bike riding, or are you going to avoid him altogether and say, I can't believe in this day and age someone will be so bigoted? You, uh, you move in from out of state. Your kids are in a public school. You want to get involved in the PTA. You've always been involved. You want to get on the board. You've done that in the past. Then you find out that the president of your PTA works for Planned Parenthood where she encourages young women to abort their children. Do you decide, yeah, it's not for me? Or do you decide this is a great opportunity? The office partner you share uh, the office room with, he comes in every weekend and he's always bragging about his sexual conquest. You know, had a different girl Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was a great weekend. Do you just avoid him? Or do you look for an opportunity to build a relationship and invite him here to Rocky Peak? You see? See, which path are we on? See, see, one path is a path of judgment and avoidance. The other path is a path of grace and engagement. Which path are you on? You see, one is the path of the Pharisees. One is the path of Jesus. You know, this fall, in the series of the assignment, I, I shared a quote from you from Bill Hybels. Um, I think it's worth coming back to now. It's kind of long, but in context of what we've talked about today, I think it'll speak to you. There in your note sheet, Let's just run through it real quickly. It says, the longer a person attends church, I'll wait. (laughs) All right, I know it's a long night. Um, The longer a person attends church, the fewer evangelistic discussions they engage in with family members and friends, fewer presentations of the life-changing plan of salvation are given, fewer invitations to events that attractively present the message of Christ are offered, mostly because Christ's followers have fewer friends outside the faith to whom to offer them. Instead of walking toward people who need God's redemptive love, they step into a mode of no longer wanting anything to do with them. Self-proclaimed followers of Jesus Christ develop an aversion to non-believers, going to all lengths to avoid the exact people Jesus came to redeem. Again, no one in his right mind would, would own up to this out loud, but I watch it go on below the surface in a person's mind and heart all the time. A Christ follower says, I am so sick and tired of the filthy mouth of this guy at work. I can't stand his language. I hate his jokes and how he lives. Or you wouldn't believe the morals of my neighbor, the parting she does. And my boss, you should see his voting patterns. If I could vote him out of here, I would. And the aversion can become so intense 
that a Christ follower has to plumb new depths of dysfunction to deal with it. Here's what I'll do, she says. I'll set my alarm so in the morning I'll get up to Christian music. I'll email my Christian girlfriends all through the course of my workday so I can stay pumped up with Christian thoughts. At break time, coffee time, lunch time, I'm gonna sit by myself and read my Bible. Then I'll fill my evenings with family and church activities. And if I watch television at all, it's only Christian shows for me. I'll go to bed, wake up tomorrow, start over with step one. My life will stay exactly how I want it to be, simple and safe, spotless and uncluttered, protected and predictable, just the way I like it. And then Bill says, and if I'm forced to nail it down, I see only one problem with this cocooning pattern. It's the polar opposite of the way of Christ. Amen. So, um, brothers, sisters, um, are you a friend of sinners? It's funny how it's so easy to read that in the gospel and to applaud for Jesus. Way to go. Good job, Jesus. You go towards those tax collectors and sinners. That's awesome. And then when some move in across the street, we uh, pull down the garage door, don't look up on the way to our car, because we got to go to church. (laughs) Something's gone wrong, right? And I'm right there with you. And as a church of Jesus, we want to be on the same path he was on. Amen? Amen. Amen. We want to be friends. We want to learn how to do that. We want to love people well for the kingdom. We want to go after them like Jesus did. And we want to get the title, Friend of Sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to start by just confessing that so often we have misunderstood or done things wrong that um, many times we've probably bought into the paradigm of the Pharisees that to stay close to you, we just stay away from people who aren't. And so, God, we pray you'd forgive us for that. And Jesus, we pray you'd mentor us, you'd be our shepherd, you'd put your arm around us, you'd love us well, and you'd teach us how to walk with you into people's lives who are far from you for the, for the sake of, of loving them, healing them, for the sake of the kingdom. We pray that uh, you would teach us how to do that as, as, as individuals and as a church. And Lord, as we, we come now to bring our, our offering, we pray that you would use these gifts to create a place. It's a true hospital here at Rocky Peak where, where many sons and daughters who are walking in darkness can come and find light. We pray, God, that you'd teach us how to tear down those walls in our own lives tear down the, li- the walls in our church to create a place, to create those comfortable spaces for people to come and meet the rabbi that's changed our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. amen. It's what it's all about, that Jesus has come to tear down the walls between heaven and earth, and when we become a follower of Jesus, it becomes part of our, our joy our calling, our assignment, to get people who tear down walls. Religious people put up walls. Jesus people tear down walls. Next week, we're going to be studying about that more. I, I'm really looking forward to this three-week mini-series. I think we're set up for it well now. We understand sinners. We understand tax collectors. We understand Jesus. We understand Pharisees. And so these next three weeks, we'll be looking at the next three conflict events and 
I'll be doing this mini-series called Religion Kills. And what we'll learn is that when religion comes into our life, it destroys our relationship with God. And it turns us into people that are like the Pharisees, that are a menace to society. It's interesting today because some of these new, uh, kind of new atheists that have come along, the Christopher Hitchens and the Richard Dawkins and so on, you know, they're not only claiming there's no God, they're claiming that religion is one of the greatest evils of the human race. And as I read Jesus, I have to agree with them. But fortunately, Jesus has not come to start a religion. He's come to store relationships. First, our relationship with God, and then our relationship with one another. And so next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the dangers of religion, how to recognize that even in our own lives. My goal is to kind of take a flamethrower out and start just going through and just come burning through our lives. We're going to burn up religion. We're going to get real religion. We're going to head out for some relationship. And so I hope you can be here just for that time as God, these next three weeks, begins to understand a little bit more, just burning up some of the things that, that we've been taught or exposed to before that have really put up walls between us and God and us and others. And, and that together we'll be able to tear down these walls in Jesus' name and let the King come through and bring his kingdom in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Have a great week. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.